All right, Psalm 33, verse 12. One verse, important one for our country. Blessed is the nation, this is verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. If you use the King James Bible, which we use here, one of the advantages of King James Bible is that those that translate it would always put in caps when the word is Jehovah, as opposed to Adonai, which is Lord also, but they would put that in smaller, lowercase letters. So I'll read it the way it's actually written. Blessed is the nation whose God is Jehovah. That makes it very specific. And the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. In Congress, July 4, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth to separate an equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall deem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, which evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object to the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world, and the Declaration of Independence goes on to name these abuses. What I want to talk to you about today is the subject of American exceptionalism and what we do next. You should understand, if you don't already, that any organization's charter is different than its constitution and bylaws. In other words, the charter is in many respects superior to the rules and regulations or the laws of any organization, and that would include the United States of America. The Declaration of Independence is our charter. It says this is why we exist. 
This is who we are. This is who we design ourselves to be or believe ourselves to be in the future. These words, as you know, were written and signed by 56 men who put their lives, their fortunes, everything into the hands of providence, God's providence, coming up against an unbelievable superior power such as Great Britain to say we will no longer stand for these abuses. We're going to fight. Now you must know this too as part of history that there was already skirmishes taking place before this document was signed. What's amazing to me, as just a matter of comparison, is the average age of the men that signed the Declaration of Independence, the average age was 44. And the youngest was Thomas Jefferson, he was only 33 years old. The oldest was Benjamin Franklin, he was 70 years old. But the average age was just young men in their 40s. What's even more interesting is many of the founding fathers and those that would become later prominent in uh, our history at the time of the revolution, at the time of the signing of the declaration, though they didn't actually sign, were people like James Monroe, he was 18 years old. Alexander Hamilton was 21. And then you have many, if you just take the time to look it up and look through the names of the founders who are not as well known as Washington and Franklin and Jefferson and so forth, Adams. Some of them were only 15 years old, 16 years old, 17 years old. They were barely teenagers, many of them. That pledged their lives, their fortunes, their reputations on this document that we're not gonna take the abuse of the government, particularly the king, and we're gonna form our own government. This is who we aspire to be. Again, it's just a bit of a kind of a novelty to think about the average 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old today, or even the average individual in their early 40s signing a document. Again, some didn't sign. I mean, some of these founders that we look to were not signatories on the Declaration of Independence. Nevertheless, they were very, very, very young, barely teenagers. Yet they were willing to go up against, at that time, the greatest power in the world to obtain freedom. And I think of the situation that we are in right now here in America, and by comparison, I say to myself, how do teenagers today compare to these men in the 18th century? The sacrifices they were willing to make. I mentioned to you a little while ago about Vietnam and those of us that lived through it. And what happened here in America during that period of time without going into all the details that most of you know was just simply horrible horrible. And I don't want to go too far down the rabbit trail. I just simply want to say that our country was founded on an ideal that is now known as American exceptionalism. I'll give it a little bit more detail on that in just a second. What American exceptionalism does not mean is that we and anybody who lands on this soil are exceptional human beings. That's not what it means. It just means that our charter, the Declaration of Independence, and of course that would include our Constitution as well, we're formed on exceptional ideals. You've read this before, I'm reading part of it to you, that all men everywhere were endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that no one in any government, in any place in the world has a right to take that away. Now we know that that happens, but our founders stated that it is a breach of a covenant that God has made with his people and by the way, Psalm 33:12 is a verse that is specific to Israel. 
But in the ideal of American exceptionalism, there are some who believe that we are a covenant nation. I'm not sure that I believe that myself, but I do believe in American exceptionalism. I believe we were founded on exceptional ideals. It has been a blessing to us in many, many ways, and it's now becoming a curse in some ways as well, as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness means I can do whatever I want. That is not what the founders had in mind. Let me give you a longer definition of American exceptionalism, historically referred to as the belief that the United States differs qualitatively from other developed nations because of its national credo, Declaration of Independence historical evolution, or distinctive political and religious institutions. Obviously, not everybody believes in that, and then we hear our politicians, some of them now, saying America was never a great nation, and things like this. Things that I've never heard before in my lifetime from people in political office, governors of states, and all types of other positions, making statements <clears throat> that is antithetical to the founding of this country. Their reasons, well, we can only guess. But what we do next is really what we want to concentrate on today. Let me just share with you, I was sitting in the doctor's office for a regular, just a regular visit many years ago, probably about 30 years ago. And I was just reading, flipping through a magazine that had an article in there on how our economy developed. I think it was Time Magazine. And in the article, an um, expert on the economy, who at that time just happened to be Japanese-American, was stating in the article that you can trace the American economy, how we do business, to the Puritans. Interesting article, and it was printed, and I read it many years ago. But I want to just accent just a tiny bit of what we owe to the people who came here from Europe to New England in particular, not the southern states as much as I want to share with you about the Puritans just a little bit. The ideologies. When John Winthrop was the governor of Massachusetts, Massachusetts Bay Colony, he gave a sermon. He was a preacher governor, and he coined the phrase that we hear, that they were going to design what is now the state of Massachusetts, they were going to design it in such a way to follow the precepts found in the Bible so that it would become a city on the hill. You would recognize these as the words of Jesus when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. The idea was that they would set up a government, a society, communities, that will be an example to the rest of the world. This is, at least in part, where we get our idea of American exceptionalism, that we are to be a model to the rest of the world. And interestingly, even to this very day, however, not only modified, but disrupted that ideal has become, sometimes we as Americans don't realize how many other countries are depending that we don't collapse, that we don't fall. I believe in American exceptionalism, and as I stated earlier, those who do believe in the same principle, if they did state it, they never should, but I've never heard it stated that we are exceptional people. We are just simply people. It's the ideal that's exceptional. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That means you don't have, this is how Socrates, by the way, taught. You know them because they're self-evident. And when the founders put together the Declaration of Independence and they talked about the laws of nature and of nature's God, this is what they were referring to. That God has created not just Americans, but all people all over the world with certain unalienable rights. No one else has the right to take away. Again, this is not how it's working out in all places, 
But I'll say for me, I'm still glad that I was born in this country. And I realize there's other great countries and I realize that many people love their own country and I think that they should. But we hear more about people wanting to come here than we do about them going to other countries, though they do go to other countries for various reasons. But for us, at least for me, I'm glad that God has so blessed me to be born in this country and to have the type of freedoms, again, however distorted they've become, I'm still glad that we have what we have. But what do we do now? What do we do from here? That's the question. Now, I have taught here mostly on a Wednesday night during Bible studies, long lengthy studies on American history, quoting to you from original American documents from the people who actually wrote them, not the professor who says, this is what they said, or this is what they meant. I like reading books for myself. Mortimer Adler, an intellectual American philosopher, Jewish, who became a Christian closer to the end of his life, being convinced, A, there was a God, and, and that Jesus Christ and the gospel is the way to heaven. He had a philosophy that I've always believed in. When he put together the greatest books of the Western world, which you can still buy, by the way, and it's all the classics and uh, other books that maybe you perhaps you wouldn't read, and he considered this, if you read this volume, it's huge, takes up a couple, three shelves of a bookcase, that this would give you a sufficient education in Western culture. But he also believed that you should read the works just as they're written without commentary. I would also say to you that you should read your Bible without commentary until you get to that place where you really need help. We all do it, but read the Bible and read what it says. This is again the advantage that I have as your preacher and your pastor. If you don't understand or you say, I don't agree, read the text. You know, the, the tools that I use now, or I should say the tools that I use, comma, now are available to every single one of you. For example, if uh, you, for some reason, came to me and said, Pastor, I've been reading the Bible and I want to read through the pulpit commentary. It's a series of very thick books I have in my library. And there's about 28, 30 of them. It takes up two shelves. My library. Well, I would have to say to you then, all right, look, and you've got to spend some time in my library and then you can go through page after page. Now you can get them on a CD for $1.99. I forget how many hundreds of dollars I paid for them many years ago. Point being is that the tools that I use are now available to you. But I suggest, like Mortimer Adler did with reading classics and reading the great works of the Western world, read it for yourself before you go to somebody else who tells you, well, this is what it means. And this is a great problem that we are finding in our university levels where the professor, and I've had this happen to me personally, where the professor will lampoon you because after all, who are you? I have a PhD. And I've known many people, or at least some people who have PhDs, that a bag of bananas makes more sense than what they say. And if you even ask a question, I had this at the junior college level, asked a question, made an argument. I don't mean I was argumentative or loud or screaming. I just made an argument with the professor that I disagree with this book here that you want us to read. I'm not going to read it. And he made it a point in all of the rest of his classes to talk about me to all the other students. Basically, he was saying, who is he to tell me? He threw his arm around me at one point when I was sharing with him, like, what I read and what I don't read. What I will read and what I won't read. The book, by the way, was a salacious book that was banned in the 50s. But now, of course, this is the 70s, and we're, we're well beyond that. I told him I wouldn't read it. Yeah, he threw his arm around me, which was the first mistake. And the second is, he called me son. That was the second mistake. 
And then he told me, basically he told me, like, you don't know much. You don't know much about. So when I threw his arm off me, I told him, I know more than you think I know. And I know what I like and what I don't like. And I know what I will read and what I won't read. I'm not reading the book. Well, that landed me in the head of the English department's office. And we had to negotiate over there. I was on the president's list and then the dean's list every semester. I said, I'm not a bad student. I will do anything else, but I'm not reading that book. So we negotiated a plan, which basically cost me something. I had to go to night school in the summer when everybody else was off. But to this day, it was worth it to stand my ground. And what we must do next, I'm going to outline some of these things for you. We must stand our ground. That does not mean you're going to be popular. I was not popular when I made oh, a lot of stands in community college. He made it a point to make fun of me. And I had friends in some of his other classes, and they would tell me what he was saying. So how secure can this professor be if some 21-year-old is just saying, here's my lucid and very clear explanation of why I won't read that book, and I'm not going to read that book, yet he had to tell every class afterwards. You know what that tells me? That tells me he's not as secure as the 21-year-old. I know what I want, and I want Christ, but I want Christ the way he is in the pages of Scripture. I don't want Christ the way he's presented on some television programs, some radio programs, and in some books of theology that I've read. I don't want this. I get more confused, believe me, trying to read someone trying to explain to me what the text really means than just reading the text. Love your enemies, love your neighbor, and so on. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? I should have to have somebody explain that to me. I know what it means, and you know what it means. American exceptionalism is built on an ideal, and let's make no mistake about it, no matter who says what, no matter how much redactionism we have going on and revisionist history, read original documents, as Mortimer Adler suggested you do, and I believe that he's right, and you'll see for yourself what they actually said. In any case, we look at the Declaration of Independence and we realize how much these men put on the line for freedom. And again, let me say it one more time. We're, we're in a, well, and this is a very mild word. We're in a world of turmoil right now about rights. But they were prudent enough to put in there about nature's God and the laws of nature, which when we read the scriptures, we know there's certain things that are against the laws of nature. It's self-evident. You don't need a Bible to figure it out. That's what self-evident means. You don't need a Bible to figure it out. We have the advantage of having the Bible. It tells us, this is the way, walk in it. When I watch a, a classic old movie with James Cagney, The Strawberry Blonde, and you see them going into Central Park at night, it's midnight, and the band is playing, that's part of the theme of the movie, the band played on, and they're all sitting there, and the gas lights, all safe. Let me tell you, as someone who grew up very close to Central Park, not that far away, I wouldn't advise you to walk through there at midnight now. Why? Because things have changed between the 1800s and now. Why? Because we have not followed God's ways. We have not followed, to put it very succinctly, we have not followed what is right. We have followed what is wrong. And one of the issues that we have, as Edmund Burke, the Irish-born English philosopher, stated, all that is necessary for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. And I fear that the best of us are on that path now. 
I don't want to say too much. I don't go out to offend people. I don't get out in the morning and say, who can I offend today? I don't do that. I'm not disposed to that. However, when someone asks me a question, wants me to be truthful, well, I'm going to be truthful anyway, then I tell them the truth. Remember when the Pharisees came to Jesus and Jesus gave them a woe or something like that? The disciples came up to him and says, you know, that parable you taught offended the Pharisees. And the Apostle Paul tells us that the gospel itself is an offense. When you're told that your womanizing is adultery, you say, well, I had an affair. One man told me once that I had an indiscretion. I said, what you mean is you committed adultery? See, the choice of words is very important because words have a certain import and an impact on our brains. Oh, he had an affair. No, he committed adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And everything changes. Words are important. If someone has written, and to some degree, it's amazingly true, George Orwell was right in his book, 1984. How did he get these insights? I don't know. But I do know that the Bible trumps every book of the world, and we have it. And good men and good women can now, at this point in our history, do nothing. Yesterday, one of my granddaughters had a birthday party, and I want to let you know that nothing makes me happier than to see little children at play. I don't know how many kids were there. There was a sufficient amount. And they're running around, and they're playing games, and everybody's doing something different. Parents were mainly relaxing. And I look at these young people. Number one, it reminds me of when I was young, or when some of us here, we were young, and we had that, you know, that carefree. You don't know about the cares of the world. You don't know what's going on. And it's just, at first, it's just such a blessing to me. But then there's this small, dark cloud that comes over my heart. And I realize that many of these young people are not being taught. They're not being taken to church. Or some of the churches that they're being taken to is no different in my mind than a drive through Some years ago, I told one of my associate pastors, I had this idea. Of course, I was being sarcastic. We were looking for a new building because we had outgrown the ones we were in. I said, why don't we just do this? Let's buy the car wash. And we can have people and they can roll down their window, have a little, you know, a little drive through And we can hand them the sermon that they can read at home. If they're not baptized, we just wash everybody in the car. And they can drive out and it's five minutes, in and out. Be the most popular church in the city, maybe in the country. And everybody will be doing it. Because Americans want convenience and what we need is discipline. We want convenience. We want things to be done so that we're comfortable. And there's nothing comfortable about the cross of Jesus Christ. There's nothing comfortable about following Christ. I've told you this before, and I'm going to say it again. I have discovered loving the Lord with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength to be draining. But then to think about these young people one more time and say to myself, what kind of world are they coming into? What will they face? What defense will they have if they don't know what the scriptures teach? If they're not taught to fear the Lord, if they're not taught the fundamentals of the faith, heaven, hell, righteousness, unrighteousness, and all of these things. And listen to me. You are good people. Are you really satisfied sitting doing nothing? And I'm not talking about being radical in the sense of violence. I'm talking about just being simply men and women of prayer. And letting the word just be the word. You, don't be arrogant. Don't stand on a desktop at work. Don't do it. You don't have to do any of these things. Just pray and say, here I am, Lord. But mostly, make sure the circle of evangelism is drawn tight around your own feet. Because people will notice the difference. I've had people offended at my lifestyle, and I never spoke a word. That's the truth. I mean, I never said anything to them like, why don't you come? Why don't you be saved? Nothing. They just didn't like the way I was living. 
And I'm saying to myself, why in the world would you be concerned about how I'm living? I've never even got to the point to tell you yet, you must turn. You must turn to the Lord. You get to that place. I think we should follow the model of John Wesley, who went through a series of sermons in various places and nobody was throwing rocks at him. There was no upheavals. And he believed that he was backslidden. He believed that he was backslidden, so he went in the bushes somewhere and he began to pray. And he said, Lord, you know, basically, what have I done to offend you? There's no opposition to the gospel. What's going on? And then someone happened to recognize him. So there's that Methodist preacher. Took a stone, threw it at him. I don't remember if it hit him or not. And he began to say, thank you, God. (laughs) He knew what all preachers in the past knew. That to preach the gospel as it is written in the Bible, there's going to be blowback. There's going to be people who will say in this service, I will never come back here again. So be it. That's your decision. That was my message from last week. You choose what you want to hear and what you don't want to hear. I have chosen for myself to be a student of these scriptures edging up close to 50 years. But I'll tell you one thing. I am really glad that I did. I could be sitting in the dark and quote scriptures that comfort my soul, that tells me of the days that we live in now that they were prophesied. And that comforts me. Don't get me wrong. I'm not happy with what I'm seeing and hearing. In Los Angeles, the Dodgers, the baseball team, they had an incident that somehow they were connected to, and I can't remember the connection because I couldn't tolerate the video much longer than what I saw. But in somehow it connected to them. I'm not saying they endorsed it. I just don't remember. I wish I could remember the details. They had a man on a cross. Remember, this is baseball. A man on the cross half-naked loincloth, and on top of the crossbeam, another man in a bikini, undulating and rubbing himself, and you get the picture. And this is what happens when good men and good women do nothing. This is what happens when preachers say, I will preach to your convenience. I will give you what you want. How long? Well, if I went that way, I know what many people's opinion would be. Preach shorter, do this shorter, do this shorter. I'm talking about eternity, not baseball. And if American people can watch movies for two and a half hours and baseball for three hours and 18 minutes, then you should be able to listen to the gospel that's going to save your life. Because that's what this book says. And American exceptionalism is based on the ideology, not just of philosophy, though they consulted philosophers. It was built on the ideology of the book that they were all raised on. Not all of them were born again. We know that. But the majority were Bible-believing Christians, our founding fathers. Well, that's not popular to say anymore. Then people like to dispute it. But just remember about revisionists. And if you want the answer, go to original documents and read them for yourself. And so we have a great foundation. And we have verses like this. Psalm 147, verse 19 and 20. He shows his word or showed his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation. Remember, this is specific to Israel. And this is what, at very least, the Puritans wanted to establish. He has not dealt so with any nation. As for his judgments, they have not known them, the other nations. Praise ye the Lord. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Now keep that in mind. That will be a word of comfort to you. All the earth belongs to the Lord. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Deuteronomy 33, 29. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord, the shield of thy help, 
And who is the sword of thy excellency? And thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. We have these promises given to Israel, which we can apply in many ways under the new covenant to ourselves. And then in other ways, unlike other nations, we can apply it to America and the ideal of American exceptionalism. And I'll say this again. There are many, many nations around the world that are very concerned if our nation goes down under. I listened to a man speaking in England, and he was voicing these concerns. In his statement, he was saying, why are you trying to adopt policies that have failed in our country? And why do we have people amongst us who talk about socialism and communism and all these things? And you look at the Vietnam Memorial there in Washington, Korea as well, and the battles we fought in Korea. And you say to yourself, how now did this come and creep in? It's because we've left the Lord. It's because we have no longer sought after the Lord as he is in the book. It can be only found here in the book. And a decision, like last week's message, your choice must be like Isaiah in chapter 6, praying to the Lord. He sees God's holiness, sees the Lord's holiness. The Lord asks the question, and whom shall go before us? Whom shall we send? And Isaiah speaks, and speaking for himself, says, Here am I, not here we are, here am I, send me. This is what must come next. Individuals must make a choice for the gospel of Jesus Christ the way it's written here. And I would advise you to read the Bible for yourself. To be careful in churches in general because many false teachers have slipped in. Some are so, so obvious, you don't need a whole lot of the Bible to figure it out. But some are very subtle. And I'll say this. Remember, false teaching does not necessarily always mean that the teachers themselves are trying to be deceptive. In many cases, they are. But in some, they have just not studied the Bible themselves. I mean, the plain text of the scriptures, using the commentaries that everybody has or can have. And so it's not what is said sometimes, but what is not said. At the end of a service, a preacher tells, after speaking about self-esteem, how to be a success, how to make money, all this. At the end, he gives a little statement that says, now, just say to Jesus, I repent of my sins. Now, if I was in the audience and if I could be heard, I'd say, what is sin? You want me to turn away from something you haven't even explained to me what it is? Preacher, is there really a place called hell? I mean, you never spoke about it, but I read the book for myself. See, this will make the difference, is reading the book for yourself. And when you do, then you have a heart. A man I knew, mother was from Italy. He went on to get, I think, a doctorate in theology, raised in the church. So she said to him one day, she says, uh, you, you got your diplomas, your degrees. So I got a Bible. There's a difference, she says, between me and you. You read the books. So I read one book. And I read the verse. Then I close the book and I say, how do I do that? Sometimes we have people's heads that are all big with knowledge. But he has shown the old man what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee? To love justice, to do rightly, and to walk humbly with thy God. To walk humbly, to do it. And it must start with you. We are not going to have a meeting here ever. Say, I don't know, do you guys want to walk with the Lord? How do you feel about that? We're going to walk with the Lord out of the book. And I'll mention it <laughs> again and again. Your advantage is to go home and read the book because I have people who do it and point out my mistakes. Sometimes I explain, well, it wasn't a mistake. Sometimes it was. 
My sound man back there has saved me many times from faux pas here at the pulpit. Tried to pronounce Thermopylae one time, and I just couldn't get that word right no matter how many times I pronounced it. It was one of those things where my brain was way ahead of my tongue. Jesus. The Bible says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one name. That's what this book says. That's what the book says. And one of the things that I find both encouraging and exciting is now people who have degrees in psychology and whatever, they're looking in and apparently the Holy Spirit is showing them things and they're coming to the Bible and coming out and making statements that people didn't expect that they would make it. That the Bible was written by God himself and giving proofs. This is good. This is a good sign. But I'll tell you this much. I never want to be put into a position where someone with a degree in another field comes along and knows more about the book where I'm supposed to be an expert. I hope they become experts. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying I don't want to be put into a position where somebody whose expertise is not in the Bible actually knows more about the Bible than I do. But I can tell you this. There are many people in many churches who know more of the Bible than the preacher. And that must stop. We must hear the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the people who hear it must make decisions. Because if we don't, and you've heard me talk about this before. We've sang songs. <clears throat> we don't sing them much any longer. We've asked our song leader, do not pick songs by certain churches. Give them the names. I don't want to sing their songs anymore. We're going to take the city. We're going to take the country. And I've been hearing these songs for 30, 35 years. We haven't taken anything. Have you seen San Francisco? Have you seen New York City? Have you seen Miami? Have you seen all these places? You know why? Because God is not honoring it. Because the hearts are not right with God. God must be first. He's not going to take second place any more than you as a wife or as a husband is going to be second place to your wife's lover. And God is similar. He's not going to take second place to any earthly person, any other relationship, any other ideal, anything, he's always first. He's always first. But not because he needs us. It's because we need him. Amen. Not that he's insecure and he says to you, better pray, I, I don't feel good. God says, you don't feel good. Follow my instructions. And the end of that and the effect of that will be happiness and security inside, coming from the inside. So we go from the ideal of a city on a hill to a place where now the effects of our founding from the early charters of the states and so on are still having an effect upon us today. I want you to just listen to this. Pew Research had these statistics that the U.S. Constitution never explicitly mentions God or the divine, but the same cannot be said of the nation's state constitutions. We've studied that here. I have on my shelf a very large book of all the original constitutions of the United States. And we went through them some years back. In fact, God or the divine is mentioned at least once in each of the 50 state constitutions and nearly 200 times overall, according to Pew Research. All but four state constitution, those in Colorado, Iowa, Hawaii, and Washington, use the word God at least once. The constitutions in Colorado, Iowa, and Washington refer to a supreme being or supreme ruler of the universe, while Hawaii's constitution makes the reference to the divine only in its preamble, which states that the people of Hawaii are grateful for divine guidance, the 50th state of the union. 
Most state constitutions, 34, refer to God more than once. Of the 116 times the word appears in state constitutions, eight are in the Massachusetts Constitution. That goes back to 1660 and followed through right into 1790, over 130 years. 34 referred to God more than once. Of the 116 times the word appears in state constitutions, eight are in the Massachusetts Constitution, and New Hampshire and Vermont have six references each. And then they went on to say something that we've observed. Perhaps surprisingly, all three of these states are among the least religious in the country, according, again, to Pew Center analysis. There was a time in America, and you'll like this, not only was church attendance mandatory, but so was tithing. And if you didn't tithe, the tithing men of the church could stop you and say, you owe this much money with interest. Well, okay, those days are long gone. And the strictness of those laws are long gone. I'm not even saying I would necessarily endorse it now either, but that's how it was a long time ago. And I ask you, you're all intelligent, you're all informed. What have we got now? A man in a bathing suit undulating with improprieties on top of the cross of Christ where a man is playing the part of Jesus associated with a baseball team? And we see it in entertainment, and you know all this, right? But we need to be reminded that what we are witnessing is one nation without God. We are doing exactly what Israel did in the temple. We are giving him lip service. Oh, God, we thank you with this and that and the other thing. And God says, wait a second. But I told you to do this, you're not doing it. And I told you not to do this, and you're doing it. Look at the results for yourself. Drug addiction and suicide alone. And we can go on. I want to just read to you the works of Charles Finney. Many object to his theology for reasons I'm not going to go into now. But one <clears throat> theologian that I read said, I love Finney, but hate his theology. Whatever that means. But he had results. And he asked the question, when, or answered the question, when is a revival needed? What is a revival? A revival is indicating something was alive and it's now dead and it needs to be revived. Time for truth needs a revival. It would have been better for all of us if I said, now all these other churches around us need a revival. Good thing we don't. And then, you know, you would have loved me even more than you do now. But you know me better. Time for truth needs a revival. And I'll give you Finney's reasons why. Number one. When there is a want of brotherly love and Christian confidence among professors of religion, that means you say you're a Christian, then a revival is needed. A lack of love for the brethren. Your background and my background, two different backgrounds. Your ethnicity, my ethnicity, two different things. I was raised a certain way and you were raised another way. And none of that makes a difference when Jesus said, love one another. Amen. That's it. Love one another. And when that's not there, as Finney mentioned the obvious, it's time for a revival, a biblical revival. And by the way, you're going to see and hear the word religion in what I'm mentioning to you. And I want you to know that in the original texts of American documents, as well as preaching, and it's even in our King James Bible as well, religion always meant Christianity. So you say, I don't believe that. Read original documents. Number two. When there are dissensions and jealousies and evil speakings among professors of religion in the local church, then there is a great need of revival. Psalm 85, 6, Will thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? When we call the Sabbath a delight, as you know, I'm a Sabbatarian. I believe the Sabbath, fourth commandment, is still in effect. Not a church meeting, 
a 24-hour period where God says, stop. And we know that we're supposed to come together, but that's for another day. There's a need of a revival when we have dissensions and jealousies and evil speakings among, let me make it easy, Christians. Number three, when there is a worldly spirit in the church, it is manifest that the church is sunk down into a low and backslidden state. When you see Christians conform to the world in dress, equipage, which I never took the time to see what he meant by equipage, parties, seeking worldly amusement, reading novels, which I would amend that to say reading inappropriate novels, and other books such as The World It Reads. Let me just stop there for a moment and tell you something that was very pleasant. I don't know about you, but I don't have any dumb grandchildren. They're all bright, they're all smart. Well, one of them in particular just is very bright. Reads a lot, a lot of books. So I was visiting with my son and my grandchildren, his wife, of course, and they were telling me about books and books and books. One was telling me, I said, so have you been reading your Bible? She stopped. She said, no, no, Pop. So you have to read the Bible. Every night, read the Bible. Never said a word. Her younger sister was sitting to my right. She didn't say anything at all. Yesterday at the gathering that we had, the birthday party, same granddaughter says, oh, by the way, Pop, I've been reading the Bible ever since you talked to me. Her younger sister said, yeah, me too. I said, really? I asked her where she was at. She said, I'm in Matthew. And then her younger sister said, I said, then where are you? She said, I'm still in Matthew. I said, good for you. Don't forget. That's what we must do. Now, I know my son and my daughter-in-law, but I'd have to take the risk of offending them. You have no right to tell my kids whatever. Now, I don't have children like that. But if I did, I'd still do it. In fact, I told one of my kids, I won't tell you what to do as you get older. You turn away from Christ, I'll be in your driveway, shouting. I said, well, that's acceptable. Anyway, it was pleasant to hear. A small word took to the heart of a young person. And that's what we need. The fourth reason. When the church finds its members fall into gross and scandalous sins... Then there's time for the church to awaken, to cry to God for a revival of religion, Christianity. Number five, when there's a spirit of controversy in the church or in the land, a revival is needful. The spirit of religion, again, that's Christianity, is not the spirit of controversy. There can be no prosperity in religion when the spirit of controversy prevails. We must be very careful, and Finney taught this, but I believe it as well. We must be very careful about our politics that it doesn't consume us into looking for a savior in flesh and blood and a shirt and tie or a dress or both. Number six, and listen to this one. When the wicked triumph over the church and revile them, and we've certainly had a measure of that, it is time to seek for a revival of religion. And seven, when sinners are careless and stupid and sinking into hell unconcerned, it is time the church should bestir themselves it is as much the duty of the church to awake as it is of the firemen to awake when a fire breaks out in the night in a great city. And this is the need that we have. These indications are for you. Now you can look around and say and tell me at some point in time, well, all the churches you think need a revival. But for me, I'm not the pastor of those churches. They're not under my purview. Only this one is. And we need a revival here. We need to turn to Christ, not in some way that is just superficial. Turn to Christ with the heart. 
and respect his word, the prayer life and the reading of the scriptures, being filled with the spirit. And I can tell you more about what being filled with the spirit is not, because what it is, is defined in the book. And regardless of all the gifts, which I believe in, the gifts of the spirit and healing and all of that, you'll know you're measuring up when you read Galatians chapter five and you're starting to bear more fruit of love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. That's the indication. That's the measuring stick of a true believer, of a true Christian. And then you add in all the other things, all the other details. I cannot give you the source of this quote, but that I heard it years ago, and I have not been able to identify it, as it was apparently part of an editorial in the Washington Post back in the 80s. So I'll have to present it to you as scuttlebutt, but the statement still stands. I heard a preacher saying, that he had read and was quoting from Washington Post in an editorial about the church that stated this, just when we needed the church the most, the church became like us. Can you imagine someone outside of Christ saying, just when we really needed you to be a Christian, I mean a real Christian, a praying Christian, a believing Christian, one that speaks well and I mean properly and so forth, just when we needed you the most to be the church, you became like us. It's a fantastic statement. I'll finish with this, and this now brings everything I've just told to you right here and has nothing to do with you at all. Nothing. What I'm about to read, you've heard it before, but I'm going to read it again, take you to prayer. What I'm about to read to you has nothing to do with anyone in this room except me. When Finney preached that the pulpit is responsible, let's read his, his words. In writing to preachers, Charles Finney said this, Brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. Now listen carefully. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours in the great degree. If there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the public press lacks moral discrimination, and it certainly does, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church is degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the world loses its interest in religion, the pulpit is responsible for it. If Satan rules in our halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundations of our government are ready to fall away, remember this is 1873, the pulpit is responsible for it. Let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, he means preachers, but let us lay it to heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility in respect to the morals of this nation. In other words, revival will start in the pulpit with the preachers, or in this case, with the preacher. And so here we are in a land that set out ideally to be a city on a hill, and now, if that is lost, much, much more will be lost with it around the globe. And I have always believed, and I believe now, that the answer for America is not in Washington, it's not in Albany, it's not in our state governments or our local governments, it's in the church, meaning the people. And we must never give in, and we must never quit. How many soldiers have been given the Medal of Honor, and it's probably the majority, posthumously? What does that mean? It means they were decorated after they had already died. Some get it while they're alive. 
Most of them get it posthumously. Their sacrifice was such that they died and they give, well, the family Medal of Honor. Let's go before the Lord on this Memorial Day weekend and pray that the word of the Lord, that the word of the book, the words of the book take root in our hearts and that we look for the cross of Christ, not for convenience or comfort, that we're not looking for some type of presumption, whereas we can do what we want contrary to the book and then still expect, as we sang it this morning, God to bless America. He can't because he has said so, but he will if we comply. What's your choice? I've made mine. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we come before you today in Jesus' name. And I suppose rather than being frustrated and angry and incest at what we're seeing and hearing, including what I've seen with my own eyes and read with my own eyes, that we come to you acknowledging that we here in this church need a revival, that you must not be just on our list of things to do, not just another accessory to our lifestyles, but you must be first in everything that we think and do. Imperfect we are and we will be, but you still must be first. God help today, individuals sitting here as well as those watching by the live stream, television, and the radio to make a decision wherever they are, in their car, in their home, in a prison cell, wherever they are, to say, I will be that person. Oh God, just pour out your spirit the one that we read about in the book, not the contrivances of men and the manipulation of people, but rather the control of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, your Spirit, the eternal Spirit. Fill your people today. And only you know the hearts, God, of those who are saying, yes, Lord, let it be me. And only you know how much grace will be poured out on their life to perform what they profess to do or want to do. But let it be, Lord, let it be. So that when we sing again, God bless America, we can sing it with confidence. Oh God, bring a revival. Raise up men who understand that the pulpit is responsible for the condition inside the church and for what's going on in our land. And convert the preachers as well as the people. Let our prayers be like the prayers of Elijah. That if we say, God, don't let it rain, it won't. And then we say, God, please let it rain, and it does. For the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. Help us, Lord, to see, to see the signs we read about. Oh God, we bless you and we praise you and we thank you for hearing our prayers. Help us, God. Help us. Because we need you and our country needs you. So we cling to the hem of your garment. Let virtue flow out. We have all kinds of needs. Needs of healing of the mind of the spirit, of the body, needs of righteousness, and so on. Help us, O God. We praise you and we bless you. Church, today, do you believe that God is willing to hear our prayers? Amen. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Let us really believe that the word of God will take root in our heart and grow us into the people we ought to be, and that this you know, is going on around the nation where places we don't see. God bless America. Help us, Lord, because we certainly need your help. We just give you the praise and the glory and the honor on this Memorial Day weekend. We ask you today, God, to receive our praise and our thanksgiving. Father, just remind us today and throughout the week that we are to love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, 
all of the mind, all of our strength. You must be first. And then remind us, we're supposed to love. No, we're commanded to love one another. God bless your people. We praise you and thank you, Father. In Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen this morning? Amen.